I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that all of us on some level enjoy a good story. You ever thought about how really from childhood to adulthood our lives are really impacted by the stories that we're told that we hear. There's something about a story that just resonates deeply uh, in, in, in our hearts. And the thing about stories, every story has a storyline or a plot line that it follows. And usually with story, there's some kind of twist. Maybe something that you didn't see coming. And oftentimes when there's a plot twist introduced to some storyline, it it captivates our attention. Keeps us reading or keeps us watching or that kind of thing. And every story has characters. It wouldn't be much of a story if there weren't characters in the story. And among those characters, you have a protagonist who really is the hero of the story. Uh, There is an antagonist who is the villain that opposes the hero of the story. There's a whole host of supporting characters often in the story. uh, Conflict, back and forth, and eventual resolution. All stories have an introduction, they have a beginning, and the best of stories have those happily ever after endings. Did you ever maybe have your your child, or even when you were younger, or maybe your grandchild, when they're with you, before they go to bed, they ask you to read them a bedtime story. And oftentimes, those stories begin with this little phrase, once upon a time. And they may end with the phrase, and they all lived happily ever after. There's just something about a story that really gets to the deepest level of our own humanity. But you know, stories really are God's idea. As the creator, he's the one who's created story. Uh, He's designed us in his own image as story-shaped creatures. And God has chosen story as the primary way to present himself to his creation. And the history of the world really reflects this fact. You think about the English word history, it's really his story. And so the Bible, even though it's filled with multiple stories, it doesn't simply contain stories, but the Bible itself is the story of God. And what God has done to create the universe, to create man in his own image, and what God has done to rescue fallen humanity in the person and work of his son Jesus. And so story, we love a good story. And and, and the good thing about this story of the Bible is that it's a true story. And it's the record of how God has acted in real time and space to create, to rescue, and redeem those who are made in his own image. And so really this story sort of reached a climax 2,000 years ago when the creator entered into his creation in a miraculous and remarkable way. 
And for all we know, this story could reach its earthly conclusion before this service is over, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for a second time. Or it could reach its conclusion many decades from now. But have you paid close attention to what's happening in the world? I'm not sure it's going to be many decades from now. I think it could be any day from now when Jesus Christ returns. And so the theme then of the story of God, it's, it's that of redemption. There's a Hebrew word, shalom, which means peace or fulfillment. It's basically a word that describes all things in creation in their proper place, doing what they were created to do in perfect relationship with the Creator. Sin has messed that up, but God had had a plan from eternity past to restore a broken, sin-cursed world to a place of shalom. And you see, it all is contingent upon the birth of a baby and prophecy fulfilled. So if you've got your Bible this morning, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the very first chapter, where in Matthew's Gospel, in the first couple of chapters, we have the story of Christmas from Matthew's perspective. There's the nativity, there's various characters involved. Luke tells us about angels and shepherds. Many, many characters in this story of Christmas. But what I want you to realize is that this is really the fulfillment of prophecy and promise. It's the very thing that all of the Old Testament stories ultimately point us to. And so the story then of Christmas is the most remarkable story ever told. It's the story of God's love for the world and how his promise of sending a redeemer was fulfilled. Now, y'all know that without Christmas, there could be no Easter, right? Had Christ not been born into a world of sinful people like me and you, then he could not have died for a world of sinful people like me and you. And had he not died on the cross for sinners, then he never would have been raised from the dead. And had he never been raised from the dead, we would all still be hopelessly lost in our sin. And so it's very, very important that Matthew tells us there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place. And some people would say, well, you know all of that is just made-up superstition and myth. No, let me tell you, the Christmas story is a true story. The story of what God has done to rescue a world in need is a true story. And here we have eyewitness testimony in the pages of Scripture. So read with me there, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The Scripture says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, but he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now pay close attention to verse 22. Again, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, in the Christmas story, there are multiple characters. And over the course of our time together throughout the month of December, I want to call your attention to some of those characters from the Christmas story, some of which will be very familiar to you, but others may be more unfamiliar, maybe even some that you've never thought of before as being characters in the Christmas story. And I would imagine that the very first character we're going to look at this morning would be one that you wouldn't think uh, would be involved in this story, but he is. And so the first character that I want us to consider is that of the prophet. The prophet. Because Matthew's very clear here in verse 22 when he says that all of this that took place surrounding the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus, it all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In fact, that's a theme that's repeated throughout the Gospel of Matthew. You'll find that phrase mentioned 13 times or so in Matthew's Gospel. All of this took place to fulfill what was written by the prophet. So Matthew, uh, he's writing his gospel, uh, establishing the legal descent of the Messiah from Abraham and David. That's why his gospel begins with a genealogy in the first part of chapter 1. Matthew's writing with the Jewish mind uh, in consideration. And he, he writes to show us that Jesus really is the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the one in whom all of the prophetic hopes of Israel, they're realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And many Bible uh, scholars have pointed out that Matthew really begins his gospel with this birth narrative from Joseph's perspective. Now, we're told that Joseph and Mary, they were in the betrothal phase of their marriage, which according to Jewish custom, uh, Jewish Marriage ceremonies involved three distinct phases. The, the betrothal phase was legally binding as part of the marriage covenant, even though the consummation had not yet taken place. That would happen later on. It's in this betrothal phase that the Bible says that Joseph discovers that Mary is with child from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph is immediately faced with this dilemma. Have you ever stopped to consider the scandal of Christmas? And now this is really a scandalous thing. Uh, Jewish law had specified that adultery be punishable by death. And so it would be assumed, here you have Mary, she's, she's not yet married in the sense of she and Joseph coming together, but the text describes Joseph as being a righteous man, a just man, who wants to spare her of the humiliation, and so he decides to put her away privately. But the Bible says the angel of the Lord comes to him by night and says that all that's happening, really her pregnancy, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's the fulfillment of prophecy. And so here you, you see this story, it's something that's familiar. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, uh, there's sort of a level of familiarity with this story, but even though it's familiar, it still needs to be fascinating. It's fascinating when you really stop to consider what is going on here and how all of this is the fulfillment of prophetic anticipation and hope. 
Now, I've got a pastor, a preacher confession this morning, okay? Uh, at Christmas time, a lot of time, preachers will tell you that we often struggle with the temptation of trying to get creative when it comes to the Christmas story. Because we've heard it so very much in our lives, and so the temptation is, well, can I just be creative with it in a way that's going to communicate it, perhaps in a way that it's never been communicated before? Now, it's not my intention to be creative this morning, for that matter, because the facts are the facts. And what we need to do is just get back to the basics. And this is a supernatural thing that's happened, and it's the fulfillment of prophecy. So when you strip away all of the, the trimmings and all of the fluff, what you're dealing with as far as Christmas is concerned is the promise of God being realized in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why I want us to focus in on the prophet as being the first character of this Christmas story that we're going to consider because the prophet, and really the prophets, plural, had much to say about the coming of Jesus. Now the issue is, with all of the competing stories in the world, someone might say, well, how do you know that Christianity is the truth? How can we know with certainty whether or not the Bible actually gives us the accurate and true story of the world? Because let's face it, there are indeed a lot of different stories. A lot of different religions, a lot of different philosophical systems telling you, well, here's what you should believe, and, and here's really where humanity's come from, and this is really the history of the world and that kind of thing. And, you know, the enemy wants to keep people blind and in the dark as to the true story, and so he introduces so many false narratives so that people remain in the dark and confused so as not to see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the embodiment of truth. And so you've got this story. Some people say, well, I believe that really life is nothing more than just coincidence. We're here by the process of evolution, Everything came from nothing, and there was no outside agent that spoke it into existence, but we're just here by coincidence and accident and that kind of thing. When you die, that's all she wrote. It's curtains. Now, let me tell you, that's a sad, sad story. And I can't imagine anybody that would ultimately want to believe such a sad, sad story. Because there's plenty of proof and, and, and that points in the opposite direction. Here's the story that God himself has given humanity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet we know that there's something that's not right. Something deep down within us tells us that there's something that's broken, not just in the world around us, but even in us. And the Bible tells us that that issue is sin. Sin is what represents all that's wrong in the world. It's not so much without, but something that's within that leads to a manifestation of brokenness without and so someone says, well, how can you know? You Christians know that really this is the true story of the world. Well, listen to this. Uh, Peter had something to say in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He said, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes from one's own private interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter is saying all that has happened in terms of Christmas, the life of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, all of this has happened in fulfillment of prophecy. 
Whereas Israel's prophets, uh, it was revealed to Israel's prophets what God was going to do in terms of bringing his son into the world, even though they themselves were looking upon these things with mystery. And 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about how the prophets wrote uh, concerning Christ, and they looked into these things with interest, and even the angels of heaven look into these things with interest. But what you have with Christianity, men and women, what I want you to see is that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Christmas is the fulfillment of promises that were made many hundreds of years even before the events that we read about in the gospel narratives. And so there were stringent tests of authenticity that had to be applied to anyone who claimed to be a prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, The law of Moses gave the qualifications of a prophet. I don't have time to get to this, but you could go to Deuteronomy chapter 13. You could go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. God was clear. He told Moses um, that, that, that I'm going to raise up from my people a prophet like you among their brethren I'm going to put my words in his mouth and he will speak all that I command him Moses tells the people God's going to raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst him you shall hear that too is prophetic because ultimately it finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ who's the word of God made flesh But Moses is just simply saying God's going to work in such a way that he's going to raise up a prophet every generation. God's going to see to it that there's some prophet who's going to bear witness to to heavenly realities, who's going to preach the truth to the people of God. And oftentimes the prophet's ministry involves foretelling, that is just speaking truth to his generation, but there was an element of foretelling also where God would make known his will to his prophet, and the prophet would then preach. And you have this recorded in the pages of the Old Testament, various uh, prophecies of what God would do ultimately to solve the dilemma of sin through the birth of his own son. And so the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, this is not accidental, it's fulfillment of prophecy. And that's the point I'm trying to make this morning. Christmas really is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, what does this involve? Well, according to the prophet, uh, this is a prophecy that involves, first of all, a miraculous birth. Again, Matthew 1.22, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, for many centuries, the hope of Israel had really been anchored in the promises of God that were made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Promises of the kingdom that were made to David, that David would have a son, and that son would reign upon an eternal throne. And as you read the story of the Old Testament, you'll know that Israel, the kingdom, was really divided after David's son Solomon died. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became king. Ten of the northern tribes of Israel broke away from the Davidic dynasty. The two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained loyal to the throne. Those northern tribes formed their own rival nation that became known as Israel. Samaria was their capital. The two southern tribes were loyal to the Davidic crown. Jerusalem is their capital. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. And that's really the situation that you find in the books of First and Second Kings. 
And it represents a tension that's introduced in the story of the kingdom. The nation, uh, things keep spiraling into chaos and confusion because of Israel's idolatry. And there seems to be this question hanging in the air, will there ever be a descendant of David who can reunify the nation? Will the promises made to the patriarchs, will the ultimate promise made to David that he'll have a son that will reign upon an eternal throne, will that ever be fulfilled? Because of idolatry, the northern kingdom, they're eventually carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom fares a little bit better, but it collapses in 586 B.C. They're carried off into Babylonian captivity. And even though the nation of Israel fails and is faithless, the message of the prophets is this message. God's redemptive plan will succeed because God is faithful. Don't think that just because of the faithlessness and the unfaithfulness of man that God is going to go back on his promise. By the way, aren't you grateful that even in terms of your own faithlessness, uh, even when you think about your own unfaithfulness in your own life, aren't you glad that God's always faithful? He's never gone back on his promise to you. And so this was the message of Israel's prophets, and in particular, the prophet that's being referred to by Matthew, uh, there in verse 22, it's the prophet Isaiah. And we know that because verse 23, Matthew is quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which records a familiar promise known as the Emmanuel prophecy. The name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. It's very similar to the name Yeshua or Jesus. And it's significant that Isaiah is quoted directly in the New Testament more than 65 times, which is far more than any other Old Testament prophet. Now listen, you had other Old Testament prophets who had things to say concerning the birth of Christ. The prophet Micah uh, lets us know that it's going to be in Bethlehem where he's going to be born. Uh, you've got the prophet Jeremiah who has things to say concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to accomplish and that kind of thing. Isaiah is mentioned by name 20 specific times in the New Testament. He lived in a time when empires were rising and falling. His own nation was in peril. It was a time of political confusion and chaos. And Isaiah's ministry uh, was there to the southern kingdom in and around the city of Jerusalem. And his ministry spanned four of those kings. You've got King Uzziah, King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He lived unto about 681 B.C. And tradition says that he was placed into a hollow log and he was sawn in two under the direct command of the wicked king Manasseh. It was the most wicked of the southern kings. So here's the thing. You've got many of these faithful prophets of God in the Old Testament who sealed their testimony with their own blood. And by the way, isn't the same thing descriptive of the apostles of the New Testament? You think about those original disciples. You think about Peter and James and John. You think about the apostle Paul who comes a bit later each of these men sealed their own testimony with their blood. Things that they knew to be true. Things that they could bear witness to. And by the way, don't think that the, that the real test of someone who's listening to God and is really being useful of God will be that that person has a big following in his lifetime. Because let me tell you, there are a lot of false prophets who have big followings. 
who cater to the flesh, where people have itching ears who want to hear a particular message, and so they go after a particular preacher who'll just tell them what they want to hear. That doesn't just happen today. That happened in the Old Testament. And so many of the true prophets of God were men who were despised by their own generation because, you know, they, 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 they rubbed the fur the wrong way on the cat. <laughs> and so, you know, your preacher rubs the fur the wrong way. There's only one thing to do. You just need to turn the cat around. That's what Billy Sunday said. So the context then of this promise, this prophecy that Emmanuel gives, that, that Isaiah gives about Emmanuel. It's a message that the prophet Isaiah gives to King Ahaz of Judah. In fact, I want you to take your Bible and I want you to go to the book of Isaiah for just a minute. I want you to see this yourself. And somebody's phone is back here behind me. You better find it and turn it off for me. <laughs> go back to Isaiah chapter number 1. And I really want you to see the context for this Emmanuel prophecy that's given. It's a remarkable prophecy. A prophecy that's given in um, dark times, perilous times, times of political chaos. The people had walked away from God. They were pursuing idols. And, and, and in the first several chapters of Isaiah, you've got this message of really just rebuke where Isaiah is describing his own day, his, his generations characterized by rebellion and injustice empty religion. You get into chapter 2, uh, down along about verse number 6, they're a pluralistic society. They're full of things from the east. They're a materialistic society. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So the idea is it's just a materialistic, pluralistic society that the prophet is, is speaking out against. Let me ask you a question. Doesn't that sound like our own time? Just a materialistic, pluralistic society. Well, you've got all kinds of just idols that man has made with his own hands, and he goes after these things hard. And he bows down and he worships these kinds of things. That's not just true of our time. It was true of Isaiah's time. You get into chapter 3. Isaiah's generation was described by a crisis of leadership. God says part of his judgment on his people uh, is that he'll make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. In other words, they're going to be a bunch of immature leaders that are going to be leading my people. This is a sign of my discipline, my judgment. So that oftentimes God's judgment on a people is manifested in leadership that is really reflective of the overall attitudes of the people. Let me just go tell you something. You frustrated with Washington, D.C.? We as a society ought to just take a good long look in the mirror. God says, I'm going to give you children who will be your leaders. A man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father and will say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. The idea is just a crisis of leadership. You get on into chapter 4, chapter 5. There's just sort of this, this upside-down look at life. Verse 20 of chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
The idea is man's just sort of determined that he's going to be the arbiter of truth and he's going to decide what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's not rather than God's own standard. So that's the day. That's the backdrop of Isaiah's ministry. And so the thing is, folks, you think about our own times, there have always been times like these. But it's against that backdrop that you have this remarkable promise that's given in Isaiah chapter 7, given directly to King Ahaz. Through the prophet, the Lord speaks to Ahaz, uh, chapter 7, verse 11, ask a sign for the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. He's assuming this posture of this religious false humility because he's really entered into a secret political alliance with Assyria. And Isaiah the prophet's calling him out on it and saying, look, you're looking for political solutions. Ask the Lord for a sign. And says, since you won't ask the Lord for a sign, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You're looking for some political solution to your problems when you need to ask God for a sign. And since you won't ask God, let me tell you the sign that God's going to give you. It's going to be the birth of a baby. The answer to the dilemma of the day will be realized in the birth of a baby. And if you realize that, that's often the promise that's made all throughout Scripture. You see this almost in every generation throughout the Old Testament where God recognizes the desperate plight of His people Things get bad. How does God move in response to the crisis? A baby's born. Abraham and Sarah, they're barren, yet God's made a promise to him. He's going to be the father of many nations. And when Abraham was good as dead, he and Sarah both, in miraculous power, there's a baby that's born. Israel's in bondage in Egypt crying out under a heavy yoke of oppression from their Egyptian uh, taskmasters. God moves in response. What does he do? There's a baby that's born. His name is Moses. Years later, you've got Israel in the land. They're under the yoke of oppression, being oppressed by the Philistines. There's a couple named Manoah, his wife. There's a promise made that they're going to have a baby. That baby will be a deliverer. His name is Samson, and so on, and so on it goes. You think that God's trying to get a message across in the Old Testament? The hope for the dilemma of your day will be in the birth of a baby. And yet, this is no ordinary baby. This is a miraculous, uh, supernatural thing that's going to happen. And notice how, number two, this prophecy involves a messianic hope. Not just a miraculous birth, but it's a messianic hope that will be realized. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this is not going to be just an ordinary baby that's going to be born. But there's going to be a son who's going to be given. His conception will be by miraculous means. Matthew comes along, and Matthew says Jesus, and the the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Because Jesus alone was uniquely born of a virgin. And someone says, I have a hard time understanding that. How could a Y chromosome suddenly show up in the womb of a virgin? With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
William Lane Craig, I don't know if you know who he is, but he had a real hard time uh, coming to faith. Eventually, he came to faith, and he's a leading apologist and Christian scholar, but he said for many years, the one thing that tripped him up was trying to understand the events of the virgin birth. That didn't keep him from coming to faith. He placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he would later on say something to the effect that, you know, if you really believe in the God who can create everything from nothing, then why can't you believe in the God who can produce a Y chromosome in the womb of a virgin? You know, that's the difference between our story and the secularist story that's competing today uh, for the allegiance of the world, where the secularist story says, yeah, everything did come from nothing, but there was no outside agent involved. Whereas our story says everything did come from nothing, but there was a wonderful outside agent involved. The Lord God himself has spoken creation into existence. And the same power of God that spoke creation into existence, he's the same God who's working behind the scenes, arranging the circumstances so that his son makes his entrance into the world through the womb of a virgin. Miraculous birth. But this birth is the fulfillment of a messianic hope. No ordinary baby, but this is going to be a unique son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. And so point number three then, the prophet wants us to know that this is a prophet that involves a manifest presence. A miraculous birth, a messianic hope that's been realized, but a manifest presence. And this is seen in the name that he's given God with us. So understand this. In a day that was not too different from our own time, here you have the prophet who's announcing that Emmanuel would one day come. He would be the son of a virgin. He would be the fulfillment of all messianic hope. And mystery of mysteries, he will be God with us. How is it that a child can be born and at the same time it can be said that God is with us? This is the remarkable mystery of Christmas that God became one of us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John says in John chapter 1, verse number 14, that the Word was made flesh. Don't think that He began, that He started to begin with His birth. No. He who has no beginning was born into our world. And that's the mystery of Christmas because Jesus Christ is the God-man so that he takes on humanity to come identify with us in our mess, to rescue us as our Redeemer and our Savior. Now, I've got to wrap this up. Isaiah goes on and he gives further description as to who this child is going to be. He's Emmanuel, God with us, but then he builds on that roughly two chapters later in, in, in chapter 9, verse 6. With this remarkable promise, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's good news for Isaiah's day. That's good news for our day. That's good news for the world of humanity. Because we're a world in the dark. And the, the message of Christmas is God has not left us in the dark. 
Our greatest problem is we need a wonderful counselor. We need someone who's going to show us the way of salvation, who's going to show us the way to God. Because we can't get there on our own. We're blind. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses. We're totally in the dark. But the good news of Christmas is that Jesus is Emmanuel. Uh, He's God with us. And as such, he is our wonderful counselor who's come to bring light where there's nothing but darkness. And if you know that you're without power when it comes to saving yourself and rescuing yourself, not only is he wonderful counselor, but he's mighty God who has all power. And he's everlasting father, which means now the problem of alienation from God has been solved in the gift of Emmanuel. Sin renders us fatherless. Sin renders us spiritual orphans. But Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, at just the right time on God's prophetic calendar, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, under the law, to redeem them which were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God. He's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and he is prince of peace. Which means this child was born to reconcile you to God. Where sin leaves you as an orphan, it renders you as an enemy of God, Jesus has come so that you can be reconciled to God. Because every person who's repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, they're declared righteous and they're made to be at peace with God. That's the message of Christmas. And that's the message of the prophets. Would you stand with me as we pray? Folks, let me tell you something. The news of Emmanuel is such welcome news to a world that's in the dark. And Christmas is all about the fulfillment of prophecy. I think about this time of year. You know, the song says it's the most wonderful time of the year. We love the joy and the festivity and the celebration and all of that. But I also realize that it can be one of the most difficult times of the year for a lot of folks. Painful memories maybe relational strife that's going on, loneliness, depression, the days are short, the night is long. But you strip all of the man-made stuff away and, and here's what you have. You've got the promise of the prophets that's been fulfilled that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with you. And if you have that confidence that God is with you, then my friend, what circumstance can you not get through? Or issue can you not deal with? Not in your own strength, but in the strength of the one who's promised that he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. He was forsaken for you. Christmas is all about God with us. Easter is all about God for us dying in our place on the cross. Pentecost is all about God in us. As believers, the Holy Spirit comes to live within your heart, produce the peace of God within your life. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't know him as Emmanuel, then what's keeping you from believing the message of the prophets? 
coming to faith in Christ. Oh, there's no greater gift that you could receive this Christmas than the gift of a new life, a brand new start, all of your sins forgiven, a bright future, and hope, eternal life. It's yours, offered to you as a free gift from God. But you see, you have to receive it in faith. You say, Pastor, what do I do? What do I say? I've, I've messed up so much in my life. Listen, don't you think God knows that already? But he loves you. And he gave his son for you. So that right there in an attitude of humility, in repentance, you can say, Lord, I confess my sin. I believe the message of the prophets. Jesus is Emmanuel. My Savior who died for me and rose again. Please forgive me, Lord. I bow the knee to Jesus. Father, we're so thankful for your word. God, will you take these truths and change our lives, encourage our hearts. In the midst of dark days, I'm so thankful that light has come. We have a wonderful counselor in Jesus who will lead us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who is powerful and has all power where we're weak and frail. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.